We're closing out chapter 2 today in 1 John. And we know that the purpose behind John writing this letter is to refute false teaching. There were those within the community that John is writing to that were not only saying that Jesus was not God in the flesh, but also claiming that they were without sin. So John spends a lot of time in these early chapters refuting these false claims through emphasizing to the true believers the importance of sound doctrine, which is one of the reasons why we are delighting in doctrine every evening for the next five weeks. This is the moment of the service where we give a shameless plug to come back at four o'clock tonight as we will be studying the doctrine of God. So I hope you'll join us tonight. I'm sure most of us in this room, however, can recall a situation where someone that you knew really well within the church, whether it be this church or perhaps the church that you grew up at, ruined their lives because of sin. Can you think of an individual that has done that before in your life? They were at one time faithfully following after Christ and then seemingly out of nowhere, their lives have been ruined by the devastation and the destruction of sin. And by the grace of God, many people repent and are restored. But sadly, there are also those that never return to the faith and that are no longer walking with God. These stories are tragic for two reasons. Number one, they're tragic for the church. The church members, because it's discouraging to see Christians that fall away. And number two, it's also a damaging witness to a lost world that is looking to the church to be a shining light and a beacon on a hill. In these two short verses that we're going to read today, talking about abiding in Christ and regeneration by God's grace, we will see that while falling to sin, destroying our lives as a result of sin can happen to anyone if we abide in Christ and if we properly understand regeneration, hopefully that will not be the case for us. So as we work our way through the text today, two points. Number one, we can have confidence through abiding in Christ. And then number two, we have righteousness through justification. So we have confidence through abiding, and we have righteousness through justification. Number one, we have confidence through abiding in Christ. We see John yet again using his favorite designation of children to refer to his audience. And while the phrase, and now, indicates that he is concluding this section of the teaching, he concludes first by reminding his readers of the importance of abiding in Christ, which we just sang about earlier this morning. And we spent a lot of time talking about abiding last week as well. But in the context of this verse, abiding is associated with confidence. And that confidence is related specifically to the return of Christ. John is encouraging these believers to abide in Christ because one day Jesus will return. And that should be a time of 
great joy that we should experience with great confidence. Let's take a few moments and discuss the return of Christ. Where do we primarily learn about the return of Christ? Well, the best place to look is actually Jesus' final words before he ascends into heaven, Acts 1.11. It's actually not Jesus, it's the angels saying, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We are told that Jesus' ascension would not be the last time that his followers would see him. He will one day return, and when he returns, his return will be bodily, it will be personal, it will be visible, it will be glorious, and it will be triumphant. Let me say him again. His return will be bodily, it will be, I lost my spot, personal, visible, glorious, and triumphant. Brothers and sisters, this is not a myth. This is real. Jesus is coming back. Amen? When a believer abides in Christ, they can approach his second coming with great confidence. When we are content and connected to Christ through his word, through his church, through prayer, it should give us confidence and assurance When Christ returns, he is going to collect his bride. And his bride is not anyone who attends church. His bride is not people who simply believe in a higher power. His bride is not someone who knows the facts about who Jesus is, that he performed miracles, that he lived on earth, that he died and was resurrected. Those people will not be collected. Jesus is only going to collect as his bride those who have repented of their sin and believed in faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and the demonstration of his power in his resurrection. These are the ones who Christ will collect when he returns. In contrast, John says, others will shrink from him at his coming. You can't help but think of Genesis 3 when you read that phrase, shrink from him in shame at his coming. Let me just read a portion of Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? That's joking, of course. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 hide from God in shame 
because of their sin. Because of the entrance of sin into the world, the holiness of God now hit them in a way that they had never noticed before. See, God was always holy. Fully holy, fully righteous, even in Genesis 1 and 2. Nothing changed about God. The only thing that changed was the shame that Adam and Eve now felt before a holy God because of the entrance of sin into the world. And after the fall, we're told that Adam and Eve are driven out of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword guarding the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve's sin now brings shame into everyone's relationship with God prior to faith in Christ. Why? Because we have all inherited their sin nature. The only ones who will shrink from him in shame at his coming will be those who have not repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ. Why will they shrink in shame at his coming? Because they are still enslaved to their sin and they have not received the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now one of the best books on the holiness of God that I quote all the time, is R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. And he talks about in that book that when the Bible describes holiness, it is describing God as transcendentally separate. In other words, God is so holy that he, he is foreign to us because of our sin nature, because of who we are at our core. He is so far above us that we can't even recognize him almost because of his holiness. And unless God sees the righteousness of his son in us, when Jesus returns to collect his bride, everyone who has not received the imputed righteousness of God will in fact shrink at his coming. This is what John is saying here. They will shrink at his coming. They will hide like Adam and Eve did in the garden because they have shame over their sin. Now maybe you're asking, well, why do people not feel this way about their sin now? And the biblical answer to that is Satan has deceived them. They have been led to believe that their sin does not, in fact, separate them from a holy God. They have been led to believe that their sin is just like everyone else's sin. And that since no one is perfect, God is simply going to take care of everyone in the end. That is not the teaching of the Bible. Which is why we faithfully and boldly proclaim the truth of sin, but also the truth of God's grace and mercy through Christ. The false teachers in 1 John were not abiding in Christ. They had abandoned the faithful teaching of the apostles. And had Jesus returned during their lifetime, they would have shrunk in shame at his coming. Non-Christians in the room. I want you to leave today 
with confidence that if Christ were to return today, preferably before my sermon's over, it would be the best illustration in the history of humanity. (laughs) But if Christ were to return today, tomorrow, two weeks from now, 20 years from now, because you have repented of your sin and you have placed your faith in Christ, you would not have to shrink in shame at his coming. So that is the call for lost people in the room today. Non-believers, repent of your sin. Place your faith in Christ. Abide in Christ and have confidence when he returns to collect his bride. Christians, maybe this verse scares you a little bit. It could be that even though you've repented of your sin and you have placed your faith in Christ, you're not currently and actively abiding in Christ. And the confidence that we read about in this passage is about people who are actively abiding in Christ. Which means that it is very possible that even though you have repented of sin and placed your faith in Christ, if you're not actively abiding in Christ, you might not currently have the confidence that at one time you did. And the reality is, Christians, let's just, non-Christians, they're lost. They don't understand. So in some ways, when we talk about abiding in Christ, they're going to get a pass because they're deceived. Christians, you know that the secret to success, for lack of a better term, as a follower of Jesus is to abide in Him. And if you're not abiding in Christ, that's on you. Now, here's what we do about it. Apparently, the paramedics come. You pray. You pray. This is not something that... You can just decide to do on your own. You pray. You ask God in his grace to give you a fresh desire to love him. Love his word. Love his church. All hope is not lost for you. If that describes you today, Christian, I would encourage you to pray to God. And ask him for the grace to renew that passion within your heart. Tell a brother or sister in Christ that you know well in this congregation to come alongside of you and pray with you and encourage you and walk with you through this journey. Tell me, tell another one of our pastors so that we can come alongside of you. Pray with you. Read the scriptures with you. We're here together as a family. Don't hang out in isolation if you're struggling in your faith in Christ. We're in this as a family. We want to see one another grow in Christ. We can help, but you will have to take the first step of taking this before the Lord and sharing it with another or brother or sister in Christ. So number one, we can have confidence in the second coming of Christ through abiding in Christ. But number two, we have righteousness through justification. Now first, let's answer the question, what John says about the righteousness of God. He says, if you know that he is righteous, how do we know that? 
We know that God is righteous. And the reason we know it is because the Bible tells us time and time again that God is righteous. Let me give you a few. Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Psalm 97, 6. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. Psalm eleven three. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. Those are simply three occasions where the righteousness of God is clearly communicated. If you are doubting the righteousness of God today, then you're basing your faith on a God who is not perfect. And if he's not perfect... That creates a ton of problems for you. Obviously, the biggest problem would be if you don't believe that God is righteous, he would cease to be God. And that means we would be believing in someone who is, in fact, not divine. In God's attributes, he has perfect unity in all of his attributes. So he is righteous all of the time. Brothers and sisters, you can trust that the God that we serve is the standard of what is right. And he always acts in accordance with it. In our flesh, we are oftentimes prone to question or doubt whether or not this actually describes God. But because we know God's word to be true, we can believe this in faith. So let me give you just a simple definition of righteousness. God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. What is righteousness? God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. So who are the people in verse 29 who are practicing righteousness? It's certainly not the false teachers that we've been reading about. So this must be a description of the true believers in the community that John is addressing here. And we can be sure of their righteousness because they have been born of him. Spiritually speaking, righteousness is not possible apart from being born again. Romans 5 helps illustrate this. Verses 13 and 14 of Romans 5, Paul says, For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. Paul is teaching here that even though the law wasn't around until Moses, guess what happened to people? They died. Why did they die? Because of sin. Even though everyone after Adam might not have sinned in the same way that Adam sinned, yet they all still died. Why did they die? They were counted guilty on the basis of Adam's sin. Keep going in the passage. Romans 5, 18 and 19. 
Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, me and you. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous, all of those that are in Christ, who have repented of their sin and believed in faith. These verses highlight that we have inherited Adam's guilt, but not just his guilt, we have inherited his sin nature. Psalm 51.5, the great prayer of David, after he has blown it in a massive way before God, says this, Behold, I was brought forth in my iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I know many grandparents don't think it's possible for their grandchildren to sin. Especially those brand new babies right out of the womb. But let me tell you, they're wicked. (laughs) They're evil. They're corrupt. Even though in your mind you don't believe it, the Bible tells us they are. And as I always say, we never have to teach our children or our grandchildren how to do the wrong thing. We're always having to teach them how to do the right thing. They know how to be bad. I know how to be bad. I need the righteousness of Christ to help me holy, to help me be holy before God. Ephesians 2, 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, Paul says. Not only are we guilty before God, but we are sinners before God from birth. Therefore, regeneration is the only hope that we have to be made right before God. What is regeneration? It's different from justification. But regeneration, well, let me illustrate it. John chapter 3. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, right? He tells him, there is no other way that you can be right before God unless you are born again. And Nicodemus is very confused by this. He doesn't understand it. He thinks he's going to have to get back into his mom's belly and be born again. And Jesus tells him, that is not what I mean. You have to be born again spiritually. So what is regeneration? It's the work of of the Holy Spirit to unite the elect sinner to Christ by breathing new life into that dead and depraved sinner so as to raise him from spiritual death to spiritual life, removing his heart of stone and giving him a heart of flesh so that he is washed, born from above, and now able to repent and trust in Christ as a new creation. That comes from a 
Really good book on regeneration by an author named Matthew Barrett. That is what regeneration is. It is the work of the Spirit to unite a sinner to Christ by breathing new life into that dead and depraved sinner that we just read about in Psalm 51.5 and in Ephesians 2. You cannot, as we said last week, bring yourself back from the dead. Someone must do it for you. And it is the Holy Spirit through the process of regeneration, removing that heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. This is solely an act of God. We contribute nothing to it. Now here's where confusion sets in. Some will argue, you might argue, but don't we contribute through repentance and faith? Yes, we do contribute through repentance and faith. But that is only after regeneration has happened. How can you repent of your sin and believe in faith if your heart is dead? The answer is, you can't. So man's faith does not cause regeneration. Regeneration causes man's faith. It's instantaneous. It's a change in the inner core of our nature. It's below consciousness. That means we can't really even explain how it happens inside of us. And it's an immediate change. Now, if you responded to the call of God in repentance and faith, you did so, guess what? Because your heart of stone was changed into a heart of flesh. That is how you responded. Your heart was made alive through the process of regeneration. And if you are not a Christian and you want to become a Christian, then the Holy Spirit is already working in your heart to get your heart to a place where you can respond to the call of the gospel, which is universal for all people to come and repent and believe in Jesus. In our sinful, dead, and corrupt state, we will never have the desire to repent and believe in faith unless the Holy Spirit does the work of regeneration in us. The reason I'm spending so much time talking about regeneration is because John makes it clear in this passage that those who practice righteousness have been born of Him. That is... They have been regenerated through the process of the Holy Spirit. And they have been justified by their faith in Christ. So, the question is, are we practicing righteousness in all the various aspects of our lives? There's two answers to this question. In one sense, the answer is no. We'll never be completely free from our sin nature. We will always, until Christ returns, be in the presence of sin. But in another sense, righteousness should be a characteristic of Christians that are being sanctified through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're regenerate, then you have been saved from the penalty of sin. The past tense of salvation that I always talk about. Past tense, saved from the penalty of sin. Present tense, saved from the power of sin. That is, sin no longer owns
owns you because you are in Christ, but you are not saved from the presence of sin, brothers and sisters, until Christ returns. That is why we battle the flesh every day. So as we grow in sanctification, we conform more to the image of Christ and less to the image of this world. And when we think about this other big theological word, sanctification, there are actually two ways that the Bible talks about sanctification. There's definitive sanctification, and there's progressive sanctification. Now, when most of us talk about sanctification, we think of it in terms of progressive sanctification. That is the process by which we are conformed more into the image of Christ. It is a progression. It is something that happens throughout our life. But actually, most of the time, when the New Testament talks about sanctification, it's most of the time talking about definitive sanctification. Which means that there was a once-for-all definitive act for Christians where we were made holy where we were justified, adopted, and made regenerate. So why, why, why the two kinds and why does it matter? While progressive sanctification is a journey for all of us, your definitive sanctification is complete. So I mention it to encourage all the Christians in the room. You have been made holy before God. He loves you. He desires relationship with you. You have already been included in his family. It is done. The definitive work of your sanctification is complete. You are holy. You are now in the priesthood of all the believers. But there is also a sense in which daily we are progressing in our sanctification. Praise God for the truth that even though you and I go through ebbs and flows in the progressive sanctification of our life, in the definitive sanctification of our lives, we are holy because Christ has made us holy. He has made us his people. And while we struggle because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, when God looks at us, he sees his son. What a truth that is. So Christians, your sanctification is secure in Christ. It's definitive. It cannot change. But this does not mean that we put forth no effort whatsoever on our own. We do. We practice the spiritual disciplines. We pray. We ask God for grace to help us grow in holiness, to reveal more of Christ's holiness, and to reveal more of our unholiness. Have you not found it to be the case that as you navigate this journey with Christ, and as you have these intense moments where He is real and His presence is overwhelmingly strong, are you not at the same time encouraged by that but discouraged by your own sin? Is that not how it works? The more you become like Christ, the more of your unholiness you see. And those sins that maybe at one time you didn't even pick up on, you're now more aware of because you're being conformed more to the image of Christ. Non-Christian, 
your legal status before God is guilty. You have inherited Adam's sin nature, which has been passed down to you, as we read, from Adam. And the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian is that a Christian has been delivered from their spiritual bondage through regeneration and then responding in repentance and faith, which then justifies them before a holy God. Let me read the Romans 5 passage again for emphasis. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedient, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So if you are lost today, if you are not in Christ, trust in the obedience of Christ today. He faithfully remained holy. And he had to walk this earth amongst annoying and irritating people like you and me. He did it over 2,000 years ago. And his closest followers, as he's journeying towards his death, turn to one another, come up with this plan, and then turn to Jesus and say, hey, can we sit at your right and your left? That's the best they could come up with in that moment. As Jesus is literally walking to Jerusalem to experience death, James and John say, hey, Jesus, can we sit next to you? completely consumed with their own selfishness and their own status. This is who Jesus died for. People like James and John and people like you and me. He was crucified for your sin and he was raised for your justification. So if you are not in Christ today, repent, believe in faith. And if you feel that squirming in your spirit right now, could be the Holy Spirit beginning the work of softening your heart to make you regenerate so that you can respond in repentance and faith and be justified before God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We as Christians want to practice righteousness, but we confess to you that if it were not for the righteousness of your Son, we could never practice righteousness. So we are, as the song said, dependent on you. We thank you for the word of God that changes hearts. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.